At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, she's back. We always enjoy talking legal matters over with Ashley Baker, and she has returned. We're going to talk a little antitrust, some FTC, some other related topics with her. Ashley, how are you? Welcome back to the program. Great. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to have you back. Let's start with some nomenclature because antitrust is one of those things that, uh, let's just call it what it is. The social media buzzword political era has not done that term any favors. People have kind of lost what that term means. It's almost like there's a gap. There's like we broke up Ma Bell if you're of the previous generation, and now it's oh, any company that's huge is obviously antitrust. That's not what antitrust is. Just give us kind of a basic working definition of what antitrust is, or maybe more to the point here, what it isn't when we're dealing things like big tech, big companies, big conglomerations. Sure. Um, so like taking things back to those sort of 30,000 foot level, the goal of our antitrust laws is to deal with monopoly power that's being used to harm consumers and competition. Um, and that's its role as interpreted by the Supreme Court. It's its role from the 1970s and onwards. Um, the statutes that govern statutes that govern antitrust law though were pretty vague. So for decades it was used for just a wide variety of purposes. Um, until suddenly we kind of came about this understanding in the 1970s that it should be used to um, protect consumers um, by you know, monopolies that are abusing the competitive process. Um, being a monopoly itself is not illegal. Um, being big isn't bad. Being bad is bad. It's about conduct. It's not about you know, um, competing to the point that you are have attained the um, monopoly power that's um, explicitly legal, especially according to a, a Supreme Court decision by Justice Scalia, for example. Um, so it's not illegal to be a monopoly, um, but it is illegal to use your power in a way that actually harms consumers. Um, and, and that theory of harm is very um, key there too. It's, it's about the consumers. I mean, harming other competitors, that is competing. That's the whole definition. Of, that's what you do. Um, Europe um, abides by a much different um, definition of um, harm to competition and they mean harm to competitors. Um, here in the U.S., we've always meant to consumers. Yeah, Ashley Baker joining us. You just walked through part of the history, but let's not skim over because this is important. A lot of these laws started back in the 30s when there was rampant problems with, you know, monopolies and robber barons and this sort of thing. That is a good function of government. But like you laid it out, what these laws were originally intended in the 30s, we kind of redefined them in the 70s for consumer protection. The Ma Bell thing I referenced, that's that's AT&T for you kids back when they actually did phone lines, not cell phones. Go read up on that one because that's an important part of this story. 
is part of this the redefining of the term for the modern age? Because that feels like where some of this problem is actually starting is we're using old laws that have been already re kind of retooled once or twice already. Feels like we're trying to retool them again just for this. And that's part of the problem too, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, every you know, area of law needs to have you know guiding principles and a specific purpose of what it's you know what it's used for. And the antitrust has always been a, a backstop, um, really, as you said, um, much like it was in the early 20th century. And today it's being there are those um, on the left more so and, and some on the right, too, who would like to use it for just these wide variety of things would like to redefine what anti-competitive conduct is. And they're doing so in a way that uh, is really just compensating for legislative failures. Um, I mean, if you want, you know, wealth redistribution or equality or, you know, any of these other broader kind of loftier goals, then they should propose legislation. I'm unlikely to agree with the legislative proposal, but then they'd be playing in the right court. But things that, you know, they cannot legislate, they are now trying to shoehorn into this area of antitrust law. Yeah, Ashley Baker joining us. All right. Banks, <laughs> they don't show their tellers counterfeit money. They show them the real money. So they identify the counterfeit, right? So let's do it this way. In a perfect world with a perfect government, which we ain't got on either count, what would proper antitrust at the legislative level look like? Because before we start talking about the bad way that the legislative branch and specifically Congress is trending towards, we probably ought to know what it would look like if it was properly done, right? Well, I mean, I, I suppose in a perfect world, which the government has been perfect 100% of the time since the beginning, I'm not sure to what extent we would need this. Because, I mean, there are a lot of other broader regulations that create monopolies um, that um, ended up being, you know, back in the, you know, Gilded Age. Um, there are lots of other sector-specific um, regulations that lead to um, these things. So it's, a, it's a lot more, you know, complicated in terms of the entanglement. But, um, I mean, I think some good legislative proposals in some productive ways um, are... The, so the um, uh, enforcement of antitrust law is split between two agencies, the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission. Um, they both have um, enforcement authority over mergers and acquisitions, for example. It doesn't make sense to put that in two different agencies. We've had issues where we've had two different government agencies litigating against each other in court as recently as a couple of years ago, which um, should never happen um, and is kind of slightly embarrassing. Um, so, you know, streamlining those processes um, and those procedures, I, th I think, could go a long way. Yeah, Ashley Baker joining us. This gets us into what's going on at the FTC right now, the Federal Trade Commission, because, like you just said, these are powerful regulations. Who's watching the watchers is really kind of an issue here, isn't it? Because, And we understand presidential mm -hmm. administrations come and go. These administrations do answer the president. We currently have Joe Biden, who's a very old school big labor, big labor stuff with his, you know, politics. So we knew kind of what was going to be coming here. We have this situation with Ms. Khan, who's leading the FTC. We have this resignation by this uh, Christine Wilson person, and we'll get into the piece here in a minute. But this all, the reason we do all that buildup to get to that is who's watching the watchers, who's doing this regulation, because like you said, the legislation is only one part of this. The bureaucracy of government chugs along regardless of what the legislation does, and, and that's what gets to the heart of this FTC stuff, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. I do think that is one of the core questions, like one of the core legal questions, too, is who is the Federal Trade Commission and similar independent agencies, who are they accountable to? 
Um, so the court and Humphrey's executor said the president doesn't have removal power over uh, members of the Federal Trade Commission because it has this function that they categorize as being kind of special and that it's quasi-legislative and quasi-judicial um, and has this deliberative process and has a multi-member um, by person head. And now it seems that they, you know, are not under the control of Congress. Um, they certainly can't be gained by Congress. Um, they are circumventing courts actively by bringing their own cases in their own administrative courts. And then they're not really accountable to the president either necessarily, but also they are very much exercising what you would categorize as executive power and enforcement power. Yeah. So let's talk about what actually happened. It's very interesting. Um, this Christine Wilson, who was an appointee of the previous holdover from the previous administration, she resigned. It's really interesting when you actually read what she wrote, and we'll link to the pieces that she wrote here in the Wall Street Journal. But she actually says this isn't something that she disagrees on the antitrust policy. They actually have a lot of agreement, even though they have some other disagreement. She's saying, I agree with the antitrust policies. I don't like how they're being implemented. I don't like the lack of transparency. And I don't like, and she used this term over and over again, this is her term, the due process that this current regime is doing. That kind of is telling to me where they're saying like, look, I don't actually disagree with what you're doing. I disagree with how you're doing it. Or at least saying that um, what you're doing is um, a reasonable area of disagreement um, if there were safeguards that we would normally have, such as respect for due process and um, transparency and abiding by just norms and standards. And I, I think we've seen those really very much go out the window. Um, one, one thing uh, you mentioned that she's a holdover, so they'd be clear about how the, the agency works. Um, there's no more than three commissioners of the same party um, and five commissioners total. So even if there's a Democrat in the White House, they're supposed to fill those Republican seats. Um, Interestingly enough, I, we have two vacancies right now. Um, one as of initial one as of yesterday, um, and are about to have a three-member Democratic commission. So you have an entirely one-sided commission um, expected to enforce these laws and expected to do so too internally. They have these things called Part Three proceedings, um, which means that they can either um, take their cases if they're challenging merger or acquisition, they can take it to federal court in front of an Article Three judge, um, which is like what I think they should always do. Um, or they can take it inside of their own courts with an administrative law judge, in which the process is very much less transparent. The Department of Justice, by the way, on the other hand, they can only take cases to federal court. Um, I, I think that's the way to go. And I think um, it makes sense to kind of consolidate things under the DOJ to solve that problem. Um, but yes, there, there's certainly been a lack of transparency. We had one um, former commissioner who's now um, head of the CFPB for Biden, who was um, at the time a commissioner, um, Rohit Chopra, and he, on his way out of um, leaving the FTC as a commissioner, as he was already had the, already been confirmed to the CFPB, left votes for like, he was still voting at the commission for like two weeks after he had left the commission um, through some procedures that they would not make fully transparent. So that's one example. Um, they were calling these the zombie votes um, because he's you know, not there. Um, where are these coming from? And then there's also an issue with, um, there's this backlash. I think this is a broader trend too, is that there is a broader due process crisis, whether that's about like, you know, representing unpopular litigants used to be something that um, was acceptable for everyone in all sides of the spectrum to do. Um, now you have like, for example, um, Paul Clement and the issue with his law firm not um, allowing um, Second Amendment cases um, and leaving the law firm, like who you represent uh, or who you, it, it shouldn't be about the client and it shouldn't be about the 
um, a party that is on the correct side of the law. And in one specific instance recently, um, Lena Khan, for example, she had worked as a congressional aide to um, the House Judiciary Committee Democrats in crafting this report that was very much meant to go after some of the companies that now she is going after as um, head of the FTC. Um, and pushing back for that on just the grounds of due process was um, seems to be problematic enough to the majority, current majority at the FTC that Commissioner Wilson's um, st dissenting statement on that was almost entirely redacted. Um, not because it was confidential information um, specifically, but just because it would have been embarrassing that they looked like they're, you know, the judge, the jury, the executioner, and at this point they are. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. $5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash iron from using upside to help pay for a vacation later this year download the free upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas use promo code game to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank you can cash out anytime right to your bank paypal or a gift card for amazon and other brands just download the free upside app and use promo code game for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank that's code game for a 25 cents per gallon bonus Ashley Baker joining us. Everything you just said, you listed through all the different processes. You listed the fact that there's commissioners inside of the FTC. We talked about the legislative branch not doing their job affects how the regulators have to do mm -hmm. their job. This dissent letter and resignation letter, the opinion piece part of it anyway, that went in the Wall Street Journal that we're going to link to, do read it all for yourself. She references a Supreme Court decision recently, West Virginia versus EPA, which is a major decision in how that affected how the organization and the regulation changed again and whether it was in line with that decision. This is a lot of intricate parts. You just laid out all that. We live in a country where something like 60% of the country can't name the three branches of government. How are we going to have accountability? This is one agency. There's dozens and dozens of these agencies that all have their own little Byzantine rules and how they affect, but that's how we're governed. How are we going to have accountability? How do you shine light on something when people don't even understand that these agencies probably A, exist, or B, all the intricacies of them? This is really hard stuff to communicate before you even get to the policies of making it better, isn't it? 
It is, um, absolutely. And especially considering how far things have moved in decades, um, you know, away from the law or away from the text of the Constitution in terms of, um, you know, interpretation of agency authority. Um, and kind of now that this court is kind of getting it back to what the text meant it to be, um, now suddenly that's a huge you know, problem for a lot of people, particularly those in the media. Yeah, Ashley Baker joining us. There's another bit in this, and it came up in the resignation letter, and it's come up in other antitrust. Uh, look, this is where antitrust is right now, especially in the congressional hearings that we're following right now. She specifically mentions Meta, which is, of course, Facebook, Instagram, Zuckerberg, all this. We know because they've been there, you know, Meta, Facebook has spent millions of dollars in lobbying. They've had more than their share of people testifying before Congress. They have deep, deep ties to legislators now. Antitrust and big tech, that's going to be the antitrust fight that is in the news media and in our headlines. Give us something to follow beyond the buzzwords, because we already talked about how antitrust, the term's getting abused. This is probably how people are going to see it in their news feeds going forward. Give them a couple things to kind of pick out, like, okay, this I need to pay attention to, and this is just noise. Sure. Um, and you're right. One thing about what you said about Meta, for example, um, I would like to point out, though, that the other side does the same thing. Um, there are lobbyists on the other side, and it's the right of both sides to be able to petition the government. Um, that's, you know, how this is supposed to work. And it's up to individuals to sort out between, you know, what's um, biased because of where it's coming from um, or and what's, um, you know, kind of more more straightforward and kind of cut through the noise there, as you like to say. Um, so some of the issues that are, are on the horizon, um, um, well, there, there are quite a few things. So it's mentioned in the Wall Street Journal, this um, rulemaking regarding non-compete agreements. And this isn't antitrust, by the way. This is under um, very much newfound authority that the um, FTC, in my opinion, does not have, and in many people's opinions does not have, but they have finally, they have found somewhere hiding inside the statutes and, you know, some unknown place to um, regulate non-competes in a way that essentially bans them across all sectors of the economy um, and also retroactively bans the contractual agreements that already apply to workers. This affects like 40% of American workers. Um, it, that's a lot. Um, and, you know, what industries are using them and at what level of, you know, management versus, you know, lower salaried workers makes a huge difference. It's always been left to the states. But, I mean, more than anything, it is something that they just suddenly discover they had the power to do, supposedly. Um, they've reinterpreted um, the underlying statutes for the FTC, the um, Section 5, to mean a lot of things that are really just adjectives, um, like things that are, um, they had a policy statement in, in November that laid out um, these violations being things that you know, violate the spirit of the antitrust laws or whatever, like whatever that means. Um, that can mean anything. Um, so just kind of the moving away from these statutes, because the courts aren't really going to like this at all. Um, I mean, Regardless of who appointed the judge, I think they're doing some things that the court is very much not going to like, um, particularly when it comes to just trying to circumvent judicial review, which is something that judges tend to not really care much for either. Um, so, so we'll see. There, there are a lot of cases in the pipeline.
Yeah, Ashley Baker joining us. This is a little bit of a broader question, but I want to tie some recent news all in because it's all the same problem of, you know, the government and the government regulators and the law and the collision of those three things, because that's really the core issue going on here. Let's back up a little bit. We know that the government has its own self-interest. We know that the companies have their own self-interest. Where's this leaving the public and the workers? Because like we saw with the railroad thing where the Biden administration, which is a pro-labor, big pro-labor administration, came in and basically crushed a sitting union and going, no, you're going to take this deal whether you like it or not. When we start dealing with things like antitrust, we start dealing with things like labor. It really feels like there's a little bit of a change going on here where people are recognizing the government, even if you're for unions, even if you're for labor protections, the government's going to win all those fights. How do we communicate that? Because that seems to be not just an issue, but also an opportunity to kind of reframe how we've thought about things like labor and labor rights for the last 50, 60 years. Sure. And it's a bit more complicated um, when, it, when it comes to, to labor. There are, for example, exemptions to antitrust laws that um, kind of um, lead to some of these issues. But like taking that kind of in a broader, much broader context and not just um, labor, the ruling government isn't to make sure that the government always wins. Um, I mean, it's more important to in our system to uphold the um, core uh, principles of due process um, and to make sure that this is a fair process and to enforce the laws that are on the books, but not in a way that the government always wins. Um, there's actually a Supreme Court decision from the 1970s, Justice Potter Stewart says, um, this was the time in which people didn't really quite understand what antitrust law was going to be used for, no one on either side. And he says, um, the only thing that's clear about um, the section to the Clayton Act, which is the um, that one of the main underlying um, statutes of um, antitrust law is that the government always wins. That's the sole consistency is the government always wins. So that's, you know, our system, though, is supposed to protect both sides. I mean, that is kind of the foundations of our democracy and our constitution. Yeah, Ashley Baker. Okay, the more important question, when we're dealing with monopoly and monopoly specifically, as somebody that studies law and legal things, what's your go-to monopoly piece when you're playing monopoly? I always hated that game. Actually, it was just it goes on for too long. It like I haven't played it in many many years. I don't I don't remember. I think I like the little dog. I mean, I like dogs, so I'll go with that. So you have a bias against Monopoly on multiple levels here. It's just uneventful as a board game. It's it I do is. have a bias against that. Yes. All right. Well, what board game would you play that fits into your uh, priors? I'm gonna sound like a really boring person. I just like I don't play games. Just kidding. No. Um. I like when I was a kid. Let's see, I liked Clue, but Clue's I mean great that's not great. That's <laughs> Clue, a murder game, <laughs> like fits into my priors. Um, awesome. I, I don't know, like how to you know assess board games or fitting in with your priors. Um, I was never much of a board game player. I have this unified theory I need to write up sometime about how playing Clue back in the eighties and nineties gave rise to the modern true crime movement. But we'll get into that some other time. Uh, yeah. Ash. Ashley Baker, always enjoy talking through these things. Hey, this is heavy stuff. We got to end on a little bit of a light note for a change. Let folks know where they can follow you, keep up with you, all the work that you do, especially with the Committee for Justice. You also work with Allied Antitrust, which is what we were talking about today. We've had you on before about the Supreme Court. You wear a lot of hats. Let folks know where they can keep up with you as you switch between them. Sure. Um, so you can find me on Twitter, um, and my, my handle is and Ashley says. 
Um, and, or you can find me on the Committee for Justice website or my project um, that Andrew just mentioned, the Alliance and Antitrust, which is a coalition um, of over two dozen conservative groups that are advocating for um, the you know, basic foundations um, of antitrust laws as articulated by Robert Bork. Um, and also in the Federal Society blog from time to time, but mostly on Twitter and on my organization's website. Yeah, Ashley Baker, we always enjoy talking to you. We will continue to do so because there's going to be some really important regulatory and legal stuff coming up in the days ahead. Thank you so much for your time. We'll talk again soon, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Oh, everybody to heard Dell. All right, let's have a little fun. We talk movies, we talk culture. We go to the Mendez Movie Report. That's his excellent Substack that I know you have subscribed to. If you don't, go do that as soon as we're done talking here. Luis Mendez, our good friend, double board certified critic. How are you, sir? Well, doing better now because healing up from COVID that I had this past week. But in less than two weeks, it's going to be my birthday weekend and Oscar weekend. So that's going to be big. Yeah, big doings all the way around. Okay. You're always talking to us about movies and such. We had the SAG Awards, which are kind of important. It's an important milestone in the awards season. That is not uh, an indictment on the participants and the amount of plastic surgery they had. Those SAG stands for Screen Actors Guild. This is kind of important one. So for people that aren't familiar, explain what the SAG Awards and why those are really important, especially to the actors themselves, because this is kind of the actors for the actors award, isn't it? Yeah, so this is basically the Screen Actors Guild voting on what they thought were the best performances in TV and movies over the last year. Uh, it's interesting because it started out in the uh, sort of like uh, early to mid-90s. This It was supposed to be kind of just this thing between the peers voting for one another, but what's happened to it is that it's become one of the most important um, 
stops to the Oscars because only four times in the nearly 30 years that SAG has been around has a movie that gone on to win Best Picture not been nominated uh, for SAG Ensemble for Motion Picture. And over half of the time that a movie has one SAG Ensemble for uh, Motion Picture, that movie has gone on to win Best Picture at the Oscars. So it's it's... It's not only just about the actors voting for themselves. Um, it's also a sign of what is the movie that's contending for the Oscars, which usually happen about a week or two weeks after the SAGs. What is the movie that the acting branch, which is the biggest branch in the Academy, seems to be getting behind? And it's here where we saw movies like Parasite, um, Coda last year or Spotlight from a couple of years ago. It's here where they started to really make their move for that best picture win. Um, so it, it's turned out to be a very important stop on the way to the Oscars. Right. What's happening this year, of course, is we look like we got a juggernaut on our hands. Uh, everything, everywhere, all at once has once again mopped up absolutely everything. You know, it, it's almost to the point of just penciling stuff in at this point. But th this is about as big as a favorite as we've seen in a while. There, it's winning everything. It's sweeping all the acting awards. This is just this is more than just a trend line, and th this is just the movie of this season. It's it's starting to look that way, and this is it's interesting because the last time that I was here with you, I was talking about how concerned I was for the film's chances because of. Uh, the front runner uh, in this era since they've expanded the ballot and started doing preferential ballot voting for best picture has not had the greatest record. But one of the things that I noticed because I decided I decided let me look at all of the uh, all of the winner um, with, excuse me the, the front runners that have gone on to slip up and not win best picture at the Oscars. Let me see the, where did they slip up? And one of the things that I noticed was they didn't get that SAG Ensemble nomination. Even La La Land, which was probably our last really big, big, legit upset when that loss of Moonlight, even La La Land didn't get this that SAG Ensemble nomination. So getting that acting support is so massive. And the fact that Everything Everywhere was the front runner that could get that, and it was and and it pulls off the win at SAC. It, it pulled off the biggest win in SAC history because never in SAC history have they had a movie win three acting awards and then the ensemble. That's the first time that's ever happened. Then it went to the producers guild, which is historically very uh predictable what's gonna win best picture. And then it also won the director scale, beating out Spielberg, which every a lot of people thought Spielberg would win there. Um, and now it's the favorite this weekend to win the writer scale. It's really looking like one of those movies that just everybody gets behind. It's re reminding me a lot of Birdman because it didn't do too hot at BAFTA, but that happened with Birdman. Birdman didn't do too hot at BAFTA, but the the industry just got behind it uh, through the guilds. And last night, this movie actually beat out movies like Avatar and Black Panther uh, for costume design at the Costume Guild. Now, it's not favored to win costumes at the Oscars, Elvis is, but it, it, 
I've been noticing that at these smaller, less talked about tech and craft skills, it's been coming away with an award. And I think this just speaks to the love that the industry has for this movie. And it, it really is one of those situations where we don't really have a clear number two. We And when that, hap if, when that happens, that's when you get these juggernauts that just sweeps the season. Yeah, Luis Mendez, Mendez Movie Report joining us. Even inside that juggernaut, though, there was a surprise, and it involved everything, everywhere, all at once. Jamie Lee Curtis pulled down a statue uh, in this. That surprised people. The cast seemed thrilled for her. She gave a really cool speech where she talked about being a nippo baby, the nepotism baby, which is a joke because that's generational. I don't know how many people now remember Tony Curtis was her dad, and he was a big star in his own right, but still. That was a surprise. So even inside of something like a favorite, you can still get some surprises like that. Yeah, and now the question is, can she pull off the Oscar? Because we were for some time, we thought it was going to be Angela Bassett, but it really looks like it's going to be either Carrie Condon or uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. And I mean, a lot of people were surprised. I wasn't because I actually was talking to some SAG sources and they were giving me a heads up that Jamie Lee actually had a lot of support among the actors and um I, I i it really is going to be interesting on oscar night because if if best picture truly is locked up if we're not going to see some epic upset there um the with the exception of maybe supporting actor kihi kwan pretty much has that locked up um the acting races are going to be really interesting. We have Brendan Fraser versus uh, Austin Butler. That's going to come down to the wire. We have Michelle Yeoh versus Kate Blanchett. That's going to come down to the wire. And now it looks like we're looking at Kerry Condon versus Jamie Lee Curtis. And maybe, just maybe still Angela Bassett can still pull this off. So the acting races have become the most interesting ones this year. And this is the first time since, nine, since 2002 that we will not have one actor that has won at every single place. So that, that's gonna be very interesting to see uh, on Oscar night. And, and I've, I've noticed is that whenever Best Picture seems to be locked up, the acting races seem to be more in the air, whereas when Best Picture seems to be more competitive, the acting races seem to be more locked up. So I think that's what we're gonna be seeing this year. It's gonna be all about the acting races being the tough ones to call. Yeah, Luis Mendez joining us. All right, in those acting races, one of those that was kind of a favorite, then people kind of talked themselves out of being a favorite. Brendan Fraser won a SAG award, so now he's back to being the favorite again. Look, this is actually a really good year for acting. You know, Banshees, everything, everywhere, all at once. There's a lot of really good acting. So, you know, I don't, even if the favorites don't win, I don't think there's anything like offensive in here. You know, Jamie Lee Curtis wins instead of Angela Bassett. Both of those are favorites of mine. Brendan Fraser winning, though, does this shift the narrative back to him being the favorite? I, I mean, I'm still going to go with Butler just because he does have the best picture contender and they do historically love their biopics. The only thing is, is that every single time Fraser has had a chance to do a speech, he knocks it out of the park. And Good speeches like that is how you can get that kind of support from voters. And another thing is that this is the first time in a long time that SAG is going to be the last thing on voters' mind until voting begins. Voting begins this Thursday and goes into the Tuesday following. And 
instead of BAFTA being the thing that's going to be on their mind, what's going to be on their mind is SAG. What's going to be on their mind is that massive celebration for everything everywhere and that Brandon Fraser gave a great speech. And that's going to be very interesting. Another thing is, is that I think actor this year is going to be linked to makeup, and it just so happens that the two movies battling for makeup are Elvis and the Whale. And it's going to, to me, um, probably when we find out what's one uh, makeup earlier in the night, that probably will be a tell on how actor is going to go. I'm still going to stick with Butler, but if you came from the future and told me that uh, Brandon Fraser is going to pull this off, I would not be surprised um, because he really has delivered some great speeches, and I think there's a lot of goodwill for him, especially when he wins at when. Whenever anyone wins at SAG, you have to take it seriously because, again, you're talking about the biggest uh, branch of the academy um, showing you what they like. Uh, so it, it, it definitely has turned what I thought was going to be. He seemed to be fading, and now he really does have a shot to pull this off. Lewis Mendez joining us. Here's the thing with the Brendan Fraser situation. These are human beings that do these votings. There's so much to that candidacy that is much more than just the whale, the film that he's being. There's the backstory. There's his history within. Look, the industry votes on the industry. That's how this stuff is. You know, we we have the running joke about they love to vote for movies about Hollywood. This is a story about Hollywood when you really think about it with Brendan Fraser. And it's a bad story that makes the industry look bad. And there's I don't know if guilt's the right word. You talk about how good he is at the podium. You talk about how good a moment is when he wins these awards. These people voting on this are human beings. That stuff's got to play into it, doesn't it? Oh, of course. That's, and, and, and like I said, that's why I think it's so key that he's been knocking it out of the park with his speeches. Um, and by the way, this is the same thing that helps Key Huey Kwan because he, he has his own amazing Hollywood-like story with his comeback. And then there's the narrative behind Jamie Lee Curtis, and she's going to have that narrative of the overdue factor. Um, and then for actress, you have this battle between Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh, who also has that veteran overdue factor. Uh, and you, whenever we get to read these anonymous ballots that they send out during between the end of voting period and Oscar um, night, you really do get a reminder of that even though these are industry voters, they think and act a lot like your casual person off the street might with their votes. And um, I think that Fraser's uh, speeches are helpful. I think that Kihui Kwan's narrative is helpful. I think Michelle Yeoh's narrative is helpful. Um, and I think it's why you see them going to Oscar they're going to be going into Oscar morning right there in the race of win those acting awards. 
Luis Mendez joining us. Okay, let's get to some actual movies now. Uh, you went and saw Ant-Man and the Watch. That is currently dominating the box office. It's doing well. It's not setting the world on fire by Marvel standards. It's up around 300-some million as of the time of this recording. So it's not a failure. What was it actually like in the theater? Now, of course, you do screenings and stuff. So there's a difference between a screening audience and a regular audience. Take me in that, because this seems like one of those movies where people are almost waiting for the reaction to the movie more than the movie. Does that, is that a fair way to kind of put it? Because it's the first of the phase five, although I think the phases are a little overblown because I don't think they had a plan the last couple of years. But is that a fair way to put it? It feels like people were almost waiting for the reaction to this movie more than the movie itself. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, there, there was a certain point there during the marking where it kind of felt like everybody just made the decision that this was this wasn't going to be one of the highlight mcu movies and this is probably going to be another filler film um <clears throat> i will say that i was not able to go to a screening of this movie uh i ended up having some bad luck that week but so i was able to see it with a crowd i will tell you this I think these. I think the casual viewer still enjoys these Marvel films more than the typical critic. I think a lot of critics that I've talked to, and I go to these screenings with, they're starting to get tired. I think they've reached Marvel fatigue. I, I get the sense that they've reached Marvel fatigue. I don't know if the audiences have large tech necessarily have, but I do think that the excitement is not the way that it used to. Um, a lot of people, when they were walking out of the movie with me, they were a lot of casuals were basically saying it was all right, and I and I, it was just my personal feeling on the movie. It's I, I think a lot of people, you have critics who are getting fatigued with the Marvel uh, films, especially after last year where we saw Top Gun, Avatar, everything everywhere. These genre movies that showed you you don't have to be a superhero film to give the audiences what they want. I think the the bar has been raised so high and everybody knows about the Marvel formula where you kind of already know certain things that are gonna happen when you go see any MCU movie. Um, and I think the, the, the critics have just gotten fatigued with it. I think audiences aren't as excited about it. They're still going to see the movies, but they're walking away going, it was all right. They're not necessarily like, talking about it over the water cooler and having theories like they used to before, you know, the Infinity Saga was over. Um, I will say that I, 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 I have a little bit of hope because they do finally have direction now with Jonathan Majors not playing this Kang character who seems to be the new big bad. But even so, I, I really think that Marvel's going to have to start stepping up their game because we already got news that this second weekend was one of the biggest drops for a marvel film uh and you're right it's not going to be like some box office failure but these movies used to be like automatic billion dollar makers and now they're not and i think that's saying something and if they don't control that as the years go by you're going to start to see that support go down because that's exactly what we saw back when the Transformers movies were the ones that owned the box office. Eventually, those movies started to kind of depreciate in value, and people just stopped going. Uh, well, they didn't stop going to them, but they stopped being the juggernauts at the box office that they used to be. And that's the problem that the MCU wants to avoid. 
Louis Mendez joining us. Mendez movie report on Substack. Make sure you subscribe to that. I think the formula is the problem. This is the classic thing of what made you successful ends up turning into your albatross eventually if you don't shake it up. Look, I know the Marvel formula before I watch it because my kids have grown up in the Marvel era. They watch all of these things. Look, sarcastic humor. You know, it's very much and people don't probably think of it this way. But if you've done any kind of theater or read literature, this is the very classic formula. You know, you have the hero. Good things happen. Then you have the dark night of the soul and then you pull it all together at the end and you tease whatever's coming next. I mean, that goes all the way back to Shakespeare, goes all the way back to Greek theater. That's a classic formula. But the way Marvel's doing it, CGI heavy, um, lots of sarcastic humor. We know all the characters. You know, some of these characters are getting up into the double digits in movie appearances now. Do they need to shake something up? Do they need to do something that's not formulaic to get people's attention? Or maybe more importantly, just to show they can do something different here? I think they, <coughs> excuse me, I think they need to. Um, because again you're definitely seeing that fatigue with critics they have now had two movies that are now rotted on rotten tomatoes which that used to be seen as something that you would never see from marvel um audiences aren't as excited anymore even though they're still showing up um we got guardians of the galaxy volume three uh james gunn always does a good job of mixing it up and making that kind of be a little bit different from the formula even though the guardians are comedic um but they can't rely on him all the time obviously and after that we've got titles that i don't think any of them are necessarily going to be shaking up how these movies come off um and uh yeah i I, I, the another problem is that when you're making a lot of money, it's hard to convince you to change. But if again, if they do not get ahead of this, they're going to. What's going to happen to them is what happened to the Transformers movie franchise when that uh, do, used to dominate so much. And I, it's it's going to be interesting because Bob Iger's back, and 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 Iger's definitely going to be having his ideas of that this this franchise is supposed to be making them billions of dollars uh they, i mean this is the same guy who infamously got frustrated when last jedi didn't make as much money as uh force awakens so uh it's, it's gonna be interesting to see if guardians 3 also doesn't do too hot at the box office if they go through another year without a marvel movie hitting a billion uh if Iger might start shaking things up It's uh, Luis Mendez joining us. It's interesting when you talk about the heads of the studios and their roles, especially Iger coming back. Disney's making some, they're taking some big swings right now on some of the stuff they're doing. I don't want to rehash the whole thing, but something like Ant-Man, I don't want to do my CGI rant again because we everybody's already heard it by now. I don't like CGI, I can't stand it. But I think part of the Marvel formula problem is also the CGI issue some folks have is, you literally can do anything you want 
in film now. There's no limits with the way the CGI technology is. It's not like back in the 30s where people were writing about, well, we'd love to do this stunt, but we can't do it. You can do anything you want through CGI now. The problem with that is narrative-wise, storytelling-wise, there's no guardrails anymore on what you can do. And if you shoot real high without some real defined guardrails, you start missing narratively and story-wise, and it just you lose the suspension of disbelief that's so important when you're watching a movie, or at least it's important to me. Somewhere in there for about 30 seconds, I got to forget I'm watching a movie to be a great movie. That's just one of my standards. Is that part of the problem with something like the Marvel formula or something else is CGI and the technology and not just CGI, the camera stuff, like the stuff we saw with Top Gun Maverick, the stuff we saw in everything, everywhere, all at once and the way they edited it and shot it and cut it. There's so much technology that's advancing filmmaking. They've kind of forgot you still got to have guardrails to leave the human element in there. Well, and, and I think the problem with the MCU especially is that it does we've heard all these stories about how they rush their cgi uh and they they work these visual effects people to death um with who by the way are tend to be underpaid um you like to make comments about how hollywood are a bunch of billionaires who give themselves gold statues but we forget that the people who are designing costs and designing sets and the visual effects people are really don't get paid that much and the, the problem is, is that if, if you look at movies like Top Gun, if you look at movies like a, even an Avatar, their special effects, they, they take their time with that. And to the point that it's so it's hard to know, at times to realize what CGI or not. Like even Avatar, like obviously you have the motion capture with the Navis and stuff like that. But the, the environments around them, you don't know what CGI or not. Um, Top Gun, I was watching this thing about uh, the, the, the visual effects presentation that they gave to the Academy uh, when they were under consideration for a nomination. And it, it really is amazing just how much of that movie actually is visual effects and people don't know it. Yes, there's, a, there's plenty of practical in that movie and they actually shot stuff in the planes and stuff. But it goes to show you that if you put in, if you're willing to put in the work, if you're willing to be patient, you can make this you can make cgi look realistic and, and and but the problem is is that with these mcu movies they're rushing them to the point that the, this and they're so cgi heavy that basically everyone and their mom knows what isn't real in the movie like in the quantum mania the new ant-man movie isn't basically nothing but cgi all over the place and you know that it's cgi all over the place and I think that, uh, I mean, it, it, it is one of the reasons that you're starting to see Marvel fatigue starting to creep in. Because if you go back to the Winter Soldier, uh, for instance, that was a movie that had plenty of practical effects, visual effects that you didn't really notice that much. That was very grounded. And I think the MCU, if they go back to something like that, it would help them a lot more than just continuing to have CGI all over the place. And Luis Mendez joining us. All right. One reason I like talking movies with you is you don't just watch the movies and rate them. You also understand the business side of it. You already mentioned Iger coming back to Disney. That's going to be a very big theme this year. Disney is clearly going to be changing course and changing how they do things. That's going to have an effect on everything else because Disney's not just a big box office draw. They're also a huge in the streaming market with Disney+. Plus. The new numbers have come out now. 
Netflix is still the biggest of the video streamers, Amazon Prime, then Disney, then Apple. You know, you go on down the list, you got, you know, HBO Max, Peacock, HBO Max may be changing because Discovery, Warner Brothers is up for sale. There's a lot of moving parts to media consumption right now. But the one that always catches me because and this is where being a parent of teens and young adults really comes in. Netflix is the largest with around two million, 200 million subscribers. Right. And they're coming down a little bit. YouTube has two billion. I don't know that we discuss enough in entertainment, whether it's movies or just clips of stuff or whatever, how much YouTube changed everything. Because now, like even somebody wants to watch a movie, a lot of times they YouTube it first. Oh, can I find the clips on movie? Or I just want to see this one part of this movie. Two billion is so much bigger than the 200 million of a Netflix or an Amazon Prime. I'm not sure us, the adults, realize the next generation, they go to YouTube for everything. Disney's openly talking about this. Some of the other streamers are talking about this. I think this is something we really need to pay attention to. That's a generational shift. Everybody's expecting not only non-commercials, but they want their stuff now. They want it in small bites, and they want it immediately. Yeah, and and I think that's why you see see, uh, people not necessarily like watch stuff live. They go back and want to watch the highlights, if anything. Um, I also think that's why you're seeing Netflix now starting to get into the game of actual live streaming events, especially with this partnership that they now have with it, with SAG, and that they're going to start hosting the awards. Um, YouTube hosted SAG this year because Netflix is still trying to get that together, and they were able to get a million people to tune in, even without not much marketing and uh, pretty last second telling people that they were going to be on YouTube this year. And um, I, I I think the the thing is is that because everything has become very uh, a la carte and on demand, YouTube is so perfect for that. Where there's you could watch freaking forty minute documentaries on there, uh, and you could watch five minute clips. Uh, I can tell you that I use YouTube a lot to help me get through my workday. Um, and I, it makes me wonder, since Netflix is getting into the streaming uh, game, now to mention that they've been playing around a little bit with getting into the shorts as well, are we going to start seeing the streamers say, you know what, how can we get in on this as well? Uh, I mean, I think they have a mountain to climb because the thing that YouTube has is that they basically, YouTube has basically made their name what, YouTube is all about with the with the small clips and stuff. You say YouTube. You don't think about any other video hosting sites out there, which there are plenty, but nobody thinks about them. Um, but it'll be it will be interesting to see if the if the industry gets involved, especially now when you see things like Netflix get involved. And I I mean Disney Plus hosted the um the, the Oscar nominations uh to be available to watch live on there. So I wouldn't be too surprised if sometime in the next five years we start to see some integration with and trying to do things that YouTube also does. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. All right, something fun. You were tweeting about it. What was Thanos cooking in that pot right before Thor took his head off? I know it's a spoiler, but if you haven't seen it by now, that's on you. What was Thanos cooking in that pot? Y'all were having some fun on uh, social media with this. Obviously, he was making you a birthday cake for your big birthday slash oscar weekend coming up but what is it you think that the uh destroyer of half of all life in the galaxy was cooking up in the pot 
I always thought it was soup. I mean, it, it to me it seemed like he, he was making a stew. Uh, I I mean, I got to tell you, one of these days I need to hunt down the video that created that meme because I want to know how much time they spent trying to figure out what was in disguise. Uh, uh, what this guy was cooking because it was the last thing I was thinking about when I was watching the movie for the first time. Yeah, that's kind of the cool thing. You can go back and check these things out. Luis Mendez, he's the observer of movies so that we don't have to. I can just ask him about it and he can tell me about it. We're going to keep talking about this stuff, man, especially CG. Look, you said it was Ant-Man the Wasp. It's CGI wall to wall. So I was like, nope, I'm out. I'm done. I'm not watching that one. I'll watch it when the kids watch it at the house, stuff like that. These issues will continue. And of course, Oscar season coming up. We'll talk to you about that. Let folks know where they can follow you, how they can keep up with the Mendez movie report, which is great. I read it all the time. And until we get you back on the program again, how they can keep up with you, my friend. Uh, Mendes Movie Report at Substack.com. I'm also available on YouTube, Facebook, um, Instagram, Twitter, and if anybody out there has a letterbox under Mendes Movie RPT, I am happy to say that I finally got a YouTube video up where I was talking about uh, the best picture race. I do plan to be doing uh, more videos on there, but. Uh, uh, I definitely will be writing for Ordinary Time soon, too, because the uh, final Oscar analysis is going to be due soon. It will be. We're happy to have you. Check out his YouTube. We're going to keep having him on here because he's really good at this stuff. Luis Mendez, thanks for the time, my friend. Hey, uh, always happy to be here. Yes, sir. Thank you. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, let's talk a little healthcare policy. And this is one of our go-tos for it. She's really bright. We love talking to her. Actually got to meet her back over the Christmas break, which is really nice. Elise Omidro, happy to have you back on the program, man. Welcome back. Thank you so much, Andrew. I'm glad to be back. Thrilled to have you. Uh, you've been doing a lot of writing about this, but I want let's let's I always like to start with the core problem before we get into the specifics. It's the terminology. Government healthcare. Why do we have this cognitive dissonance that if we put those two words together, all the problems that are inherent to healthcare, whatever system you use, magically go away, and all the problems that are inherent to government magically go away. But if we put those two words together, it's this magical thing that works perfectly. But it doesn't. But that's how a lot of people seem to treat it. Why is that? I wish I could tell you exactly why. I think there are just many misconceptions about how we access healthcare. And that's why we think that, you know, if the government gets involved, it's just, just going to make it all equal for everybody. The only way to make something equally accessible is the government providing it. But as you know, uh, as you and I know, uh, getting a, access to the DMV, for instance, is not something that we enjoy. And that's because the government is in charge of running it. Why we insist that the government take care of our healthcare is a great question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why this is um, such a big focus, but here we are. Yeah. And part of it, too, is, though, you can have very good government-run healthcare. That many countries have very good government, but there's trade-offs involved with it. It's different. You can have really good privatized healthcare, but there's trade-offs involved. Why do we not just seem to be able to have a, a conversation of like, look, there's there's good and bad to both. There's trade-offs to both. How do we get into that conversation? Because that's where you actually get from just you know pie in the sky policy and writing a paper or writing a piece 
to the nitty gritty of this stuff. But that seems to be the point of demarcation of just being honest about some of this stuff. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I have to find, you know, I, I, I struggle to find examples of great government-run healthcare anywhere around the world. And truly, you know, the U.S. gets accused of being the one private, private um, healthcare system in the world, and that's not true either, right? We have a lot of government spending on healthcare. So, um, but, you know, one distinction that's really important to make is really what we mean when we talk about government healthcare. Um, what we, when we say single-payer healthcare systems, what we actually mean is when the government collects taxes and it gives healthcare to everybody for free at the point of service, right? This is the single-payer model. And the UK has that system, Sweden has it, Canada, several others. And then on the other end, we have a system called the Bismarck system. And that one is actually more so based on private actors, like private insurance companies, private providers, and they collect money uh, with the help of the government, but they really provide those services on a private basis. And those systems actually tend to do a lot better. So when we talk about government-run healthcare systems, we need to know what we're talking about. Is it single-payer or is it another more market-based system? And as we can see right now with the crisis, um, especially during the pandemic and the wake of it, we see that single-payer systems are the ones that fare the worst currently. Yeah, Elise Amidraw joining us. You just mentioned Bismarck. Let's back up because I'm sure a lot of people, I didn't know some of this reading your piece and reason. We're going to link to it and everybody should go read the full piece. The history of this stuff, the idea of a healthcare system, if you want to call it a system, government run healthcare, whatever, this is a pretty new idea in its current form. 1880s, the Bismarck model. Just walk folks through that because there's two really important things happened here. Of course, the Bismarck model in 1880. And then the 1940s and the 50s, the NHS in um, England, and then, of course, what we call the baby bloom explosion, the post-war era in America, where healthcare here started becoming tied to your job. Those are kind of the three important spots to how we got to modern healthcare, at least in the West, right? So this is true. And this is when we talk about paying for healthcare. What's important to remember is why we needed those systems in the first place. That was your question. Well, until you know, very recently, we didn't have great medicine. You know, people could call themselves doctors, and they they had some training, but we kind of lacked the the real impact that medicine has today. Modern medicine is why, really, we have this need for some sort of regulation and uh, you know a way of paying for this more expensive care for those highly trained people. And so Otto von Bismarck was a German um, politician. He came up with the system um, to to um, enable people to pay for this care that was so expensive. Um, that was the system that I described earlier that's more market-based, where uh, the government is involved in collecting the, the money, making sure, sometimes through an individual mandate, um, to make sure that people have some sort of coverage, but it is provided through private actors, um, private insurance companies, and private hospitals. Those people are not employed by the government. In the 40s, what we have in the UK is Lord um, Beveridge, who, um, who designed this uh, system for the, uh, the National Health System Service in, in the UK, what he had in mind is, well, look, during the, during the war, everyone had universal access to emergency services. Why not make this available to everybody in the UK for all healthcare services? And the people who pushed back at the time the most were actually doctors. And doctors were like, we don't want to be employed by the government. We want to you know, have our own... Um, our own uh, employment that's not provided by the government. 
And the way he went around that, the way the, the way the government went around that was simply to give doctors a lot more money than they had, um, you know, than they had hoped for. And so by giving them a lot of funding, um, the doctors were um, fine with this national health service. And this brings us back to today, where actually the money has not followed as it's not nearly as good as it was back back in the days. And so doctors today are not paid enough and they don't want to stay in the system. They actually want to exit it. Yeah, Elise Amidra is joining us. That's part of what's going on with the American model right now, where doctors are very well paid privately. Look, I'm a, I'm a VA patient. I get my health care through the VA system. One of the biggest problems the VA got, I, I've literally had a conversation with doctors where they're like, you know, they're like, I can't go to the VA. You know, their, their starting salary is my bonus check for the year. Like they just, they do not pay the doctors. So you do not get those top level doctors. You get some because they see it as a calling and whatever. I don't want to knock all of them. This is just part of inherency into the system, especially the, the American system. You just walk through the history of like the NHS and how they got there. America has, for good, bad, or indifferent, probably more of a mix of both than a lot of people. But that also brings inherent problems to how we do healthcare, And that's the crisis that we have. And that's the fight with it, because some folks have one thing, some folks have the other. And then you have in all healthcare systems. The people that don't have access to anything, what do you do with that, which almost has to be a government type option. That's kind of the core of the whole thing, isn't it? Yeah. And that's where I think, you know, free market advocates should be clear. There are people out there who really need help because their their services are going to be too expensive and they simply don't have the money for it. This is why we have Medicaid, right? So if we look at our own history, um, like you mentioned earlier, it the um, healthcare insurance in the U.S. is tied to your employment for the most part. So that's something that came up in the in the 40s during the war. Um, employers were not allowed to to compensate their employees more. They, they were wage freezes. So instead, um, employee, employers started to give insurance to their employees as a benefit, as a way of compensating and attracting that workforce. And in the after the war ended, um, the, RI, the IRS was able to make that permanent. So uh, meaning the the, the tax exemption that uh, employers get for giving um, uh, insurance benefits to employees. And so this is how we built a model that is rooted in employment. Now, 20 years later, people started to retire and they said, well, where's my healthcare that I'm no longer employed, I need to find some sort of coverage. So that's when we um, created Medicare um, for the elderly. So that's the insurance for the elderly people 65 and over. And we also have Medicaid, which is for people who are low income or are very sick. And that's all good and fine, except that today, one in four Americans is on Medicaid. So this has become a huge program that is not at all just for people who are very sick or very poor. It, is, it has expanded to a whole host of Americans who could actually rely on better coverage that is not government provided. But like you said earlier, we have a system that is now um, primarily government funded for, you know, a fourth of a quarter of the population right now. And that's a problem because Medicaid doctors don't get paid as much and access is not as good because there are too many people in the program. So we are in at risk of copying um, the issues that we see in other countries like the UK by creating our own little mini single payer system in the US.
Yeah, a Leomi draw. Look, healthcare policy is one of the most complicated policy things we have because healthcare is complicated. The business of healthcare is really complicated. The government regulation, and plus there's the medicine angle on its life and death. It's a big, ugly ball. But the Medicaid part of it is probably the easiest way to explain it in, a, in kind of a healthy bike. Look, Medicaid is extremely popular. Every time they put it on a ballot, everybody votes for it. Everybody loves Medicaid. In its on paper perfect platform, it's a really good program. It gives people kind of the best of both. It's got some pros and cons to it. You just mentioned it though, for folks that don't realize, Medicaid has this downside to it where we have, especially rurally inner cities, places like this, hospitals are closing because they live and die on these Medicare payments and they're just not enough. Doctors don't want to take them because it's not enough. And policy-wise, and this is really dumbing it down, but basically it's becoming a thing where the government has to make people take Medicare payments that are below what they can afford to take because all the government can do is blunt force trauma. I know that's really, really simplified, but that's probably the best way for folks to get their mind around how something, even though it's good, is creating more of a problem the longer you let it go without reform. Is that an easy way to explain it? It is. You know, the government sets the rates. The government decides how much they're going to pay doctors and how much they're going to pay for each service that they provide. And it's on doctors to decide, well, do I like that payment? Do I think it's do I think my time is worth this amount that the government's going to reimburse me or do I not like it? And in that case, what do I do? So we have a growing number of doctors who are quitting, right? They're exiting the system. It's good for them and it's good for patients because it means that they have more auto autonomy and they can charge what they think is is you know, the worth of their services. And patients are also um, able to pay for that, you know, knowing that they're really going to be taken care of. Um, what we should resist, though, is making it an even bigger, like, bigger system when you talk about Medicare and Medicaid. Um, it's not a good idea to put more people on it because it's already bloated and doctors are already, um, you know, exiting the system. So the more people we put on it, the more they're reliant on the system. And then we still have the shortages. And as you you and I know, there are shortages of healthcare providers here and around the world. Like there are just not enough healthcare providers. So what are we going to do? Are we going to make it even harder for them to work? Like that's only going to make it worse. So we need to be very careful when we expand those those programs because we actually are precipitating, you know, a, a crisis in terms of healthcare access. Yeah, Elise, let me draw. You pointed out in your writing, our friends to the north are really feeling this problem. Like, look, we, we already mentioned it. Part of the healthcare policy problem is everybody gets sick. Every human being gets sick. Every human being dies. Not everybody has the same ability to take care of themselves. There's always going to be a group of people that cannot take care of themselves. What do we do with them? Our friends to the north really have an acute problem with this. They have more towards the NHS style than the American style, although it's a little different. They've actually been in Toronto. They're talking about doing a little bit of limited privatization. It's causing a big, big fight up there. But our friends to the north, this is really where their rubber's hitting the road is. What do we do with these sick people when there just ain't enough, even if you streamlined it, even if you make it all free? There's just not enough providers and there's not enough service. Right. Well, and... And you know what they do, right? It's it's really morbid, but the government is now paying for physician-assisted suicide in Canada. And when I put that in my piece as I was writing it, my editor challenged me and said, are you sure that they're explicitly saving money by, by helping people, you know, kill themselves through this program? And I was like, oh, you know, I don't know. I, I need to double check. And sure enough, I found a study by the Canadian 
medical association, so the equivalent of the American Medical Association in Canada, um, that said that this suicide program would help Canada save over $136 billion every year. So they're very proud of the fact that assisted suicide is going to save the government money. And that is not something that we want to import here. We do not want the government to be more involved so that we can have easier access to you know, suicide services. This is horrendous to many Americans, and I think it would not be well accepted at all. We, are, we need to really combat this. This is not at all what the healthcare system should be. It should be about healing people, not killing them. Yeah, at least Ami draws. It brings up something, and assisted suicide's its own malaise because they're look. That's a complicated conversation because somebody that's like you know end of life terminal cancer patient or dementia or something like that. That's a whole different beast than somebody in their thirties or forties or something like that. That's a different thing. But it comes to a problem that Canada has. Canada is a country of thirty-eight million people. There's a math problem involved here. America has three hundred thirty million and counting. We talked about the VA system. The VA is the second largest department of the United States government, if you don't count the post office. And it takes that much government to take care of about 9 million patients of 15 million veterans. That's a really bad math ratio of cost to care, even under the best of circumstances. That's 9 million people, not 330 million. Canada can't make it work with 38 million. The UK's having trouble with something around, you know, 9 to 12 million, depending on your numbers. There's some real math involved here that there's just no way to get around in there. Yeah, uh, the way, you know, <laughs> I, I hate to even like imagine what it would be like to install a single payer system in the U.S. for the entire country. But uh, you, you talk about eliminating private everything in healthcare, private doctors, private, you know, pharmaceutical companies. You just get rid of all of that. And there's no way the government can price this correctly. We've seen it everywhere else. No one has been able to price the services correctly. The UK has currently, you know, one in eight British person, current running eight British people is on um, is on a wait list for healthcare at the moment. People are dying as they are waiting in ambulances outside the hospital because there are not enough beds in those hospitals because people are staying in those beds because they have nowhere to be released to. It, it, this is a, a problem that kind of ripples into the entire system. If you get one thing wrong, you get everything. Um, you know, to have, to have problems. And uh, I can kind of see how this could become a bigger problem here if we let it, you know, if we let it become the law of the land to have some sort of government-run uh, healthcare system. Yeah, Leami draws joining us. You were also writing about the UK. Let's talk about them because they do have, you know, closed ain't the right word, but for lack of a better way, they got a closed system. There's, there's just the NHS. That's all they're supposed to be. You know, Richie Sunak, prime minister, got himself into a little bit of trouble because and you opened your your reason piece with it about, you know, the NHS is the closest thing to a national religion. The UK has. We're saying that as a joke. But this situation with Richie Sunak, where he admitted he ha he just got private care sometime previous and it becomes a scandal because you can't even think about going outside the system. Now, he's a man of immense wealth. Um, he went to school in the U.S. He's been all over the world, obviously. So he has the means to do it. But that's the point. No matter how closed your system is, you're going to have the haves and the have-nots, and the haves are going to figure out a way around these things. That's got to be part of the conversation as well, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a, a mentality that just isn't present in the U.S. As much as we talk about Medicare for All, um, we don't have this, you know, we, we do appreciate private enterprise. In the U.K., like you said, it's the opposite. Like pe People were shocked. The tabloids were writing all about how the prime minister dared use a private doctor as if that was a crime. Um, 
they just don't like it. They don't like the idea of having a private system. But this is really um, different here, thankfully. And uh, yeah, so we see very clearly in the mentality as well. And I, I think that's what sets us apart. Like we don't, we don't actually want to go towards a system like theirs. Um, and like you said, th there's no, um, there's no true equ equality in those systems. Like we have Sweden, for instance, where um, it's seen as the one of the most egalitarian countries in the world, and yet there are still differences in how fast people can access care. And we see that too in Canada, actually. People who are the wealthiest uh, Canadians are still able to access care faster than low-income Canadians, even if they're on the same healthcare system. They just have connections, they know doctors, you know, they're family friends, they're able to access the services that they need. So there's no amount of regulation and laws that can make the system completely equal. The best equalizer is to have competition and people you know, vying for the attention of, of consumers and patients who actually value um, you know, having the options to shop for the best possible care. Here you go again. People talk about the Nordic model. You wrote about it. They have kind of a parallel system, for lack of a better way to put it. But here you go again. Sweden has 10 million people. It's a very, you know, uh, specific culture. Denmark, Finland, Norway, those all have five to six million people, give or take. America's got 330 million. And we've got a big, diverse economy and society, and it's a pluralistic society. Is it too much of a simplification? Because you're way smarter than this on me. So explain it to me like I'm five. Most complicated issues like this, I just start defaulting to, hey, this needs to be more of an all of the above than funneling into one specific answer when we look for a solution here. Is there some way for a coexistence of both a private and a government option? Because it seems to me like what's going to be best here is to have a little bit of an all of the above mentality to it. Is that oversimplifying or is that what something we should be working towards? Well, that's a it's a good question. Again, going back to the people who will genuinely need assistance from the government, right? I mean, you can even debate whether it should come from the government, but someone who's um, paralyzed and cannot, you know, work or earn their own money and will have expensive care needs, that person needs, you know, in, in a society like ours, we don't want that person to be like, well, too bad, right? Like, <laughs> we're just going to, like, let you not have any care. Obviously, we want them to have care. but so this government option is going to always uh, be present, but it should be limited to those people who can't, quote unquote, help themselves, right? Who can't um, take care of themselves. And um, it's actually something that we should take pride in when we can buy our own healthcare insurance, when we can uh, access the services that really meet our needs. And so, yes, it, it will be all of the above, but I think we should always prefer or at least have a preference for a system where doctors can practice on their own terms patients have access to the doctors that they like and they can buy the treatments that work for them. And this works best when the government is less involved in the provision of, of care and payment for care. Yeah, Elise Amidro. Again, this is a tough subject. So let's start back where we started with this thing. How do we have better conversations about this? Because there's a lot of policy, there's a lot of posing, that something like Medicare, politically fraught. Like there's only one way that's going to go when you get the politics involved, right? 
everybody wants to take care of the poor and the disabled and the folks that need help. Everybody, just as human beings, wants to help them. And then we got to debate it. How do we talk about this better? Because it seems like there's a big disconnect between the policy folks, the government folks that actually run it, the healthcare folks that actually run the private healthcare systems and the hospital systems. It's almost like they're all speaking different languages. How do we discuss this better? Because it's really going to start there before we actually start getting stuff on paper or in regulation or in laws, right? Great question. What I like about healthcare policy is that I'm actually convinced that people on all sides of the issue have almost perfect agreement on what they want. They want a healthcare system where everyone has access to healthcare in a timely fashion. The healthcare needs to be high quality and, it's to be, and it needs to be affordable. I think everyone agrees on that, on, you know, on the right, on the left, you, you name it. So realizing that we have a similar purpose and goal is helpful as a basis. Then the question is, how do we attain that goal? And there it's important to ask, well, if you like this system or if you like this program, if you like this model from a different country, why is that? Why, what is it about it that you like? And, and I think we, we should not be afraid of asking tough questions. I think it's, there's no um, point in being tribal about those things, right? Like I was telling you, I think, you know, some free market people will completely um, discount the value of any, you know, government involvement in healthcare. But I would also challenge them on why, you know, like, what are you going to do about those people who really need some assistance? We, we, should, we should think about those things in more nuanced terms, like as always. Um, but I think it starts really by re recognizing that we have very similar goals and then discussing the merit of each option based on what we know and based on the evidence, not just on the principles that we might have or even the, um, the theories that we have about how to improve the system. Yeah, at least only draws. Here's the tough question under all this that I don't think people really talk about, though. We talk about politics like, oh, this is life and death or this is generational change. Healthcare policy really is life and death. Do we need to do a little better job of just acknowledging that as like, look, more than almost any other policy, this really does have life and death implications. This is people's lives. This is people's family members, loved ones. They them again, every single one of us are going to die and get sick at some point. It's going to happen. This is one policy where it really does affect absolutely everyone. There's got to be a little honesty in that as well, doesn't there? That, yeah, this one really is life and death. It's not just hyperbole. True. However, um, especially people who want, you know, who think they have a solution that's ready made to solve that issue will be very quick to say, people are going to die. If we don't expend Medicaid in, in my state, people are going to die. Okay, well, that's that's a, a shortcut there. You, what, what about Medicaid saves lives? There is almost no evidence. Actually, there is no evidence right now that Medicaid saves lives. Um, so we want to just realize, yes, saving lives is important. And like you said, this is, in my view, the most important issue where uh, we can deal with in terms of, of public policy. It is something that everybody needs. And also, it's a very costly item. It's almost 20 percent of our, of our GDP that goes to healthcare. So we should be spending that money wisely in ways that really help us. But it's not a good way to like it's not um, the, 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 the urgency um, that people have about saving lives should not be immediately equated with uh, their preferred solution that may or may not work. Yeah. And on the flip side of the this is a life or death issue, this is rapidly becoming and if you loop it into government benefits, especially in America, places like the UK, this is almost the government financial issue. It is by far going to be the most expensive thing that most governments deal with, especially if you loop it into entitlements, which you almost have to. There you go again. You know, the hyperbole and the weapon of life and death. 
this really is going to be probably the biggest part of our government going forward. And we have to discuss it in that way as well. Yes. <laughs> Currently, the, the Congress Congress is debating what to do with our debt and our debt limit, uh, the ceiling. Well, 84% of the growth of, gover of government debt right now is attributable to, yes, Social Security and interest payments, but also Medicare and Medicaid. Those four things together make up the bulk of the growth of our debt. And if we don't get that spending under control, we will be in a financial situation that we simply cannot sustain. And um, so that's that's the tough conversation that we absolutely need to have. We want Medicare, we want Medicaid, but they're not sustainable. What are we going to do about that? How are we going to make the program deliver good care and not just line the pockets of middlemen in between who are able to milk the system as it currently is? Those are conversations where we can really get bring people together who are just taxpayers who want to have their money well spent and who are patients who want to see quality care without the waste and, and the issues that we have currently in the system. Yeah. Lisa Ami draws, these are tough issues. There's not always a good, clean answer. That's why we get her on to explain it. And we always love talking to her. She's so good at it. We don't even hold it against her that she went to Duke, uh, but she is involved with some other stuff. And in addition to all her policy stuff she does in her writing, she's working with Health Reformers Academy. Let folks know what that is, what you're doing, how they can follow you, how they can keep up with you till we get you back on her tell again, my friend. Yeah, the Health Reformers Academy is a new program for um, right of center health policy people who are looking to uh, build camaraderie among um, other health policy people and um, advance useful reforms that will actually deliver better care. So check it out. And people can follow me on LinkedIn. My name is Elise Amedro, E-L-I-S-E, and then my last name, A-M-E-Z, space D-R-O-Z. So you can follow me there. Yeah, we appreciate you greatly. Another one of our great Young Voices contributors. We've had her on a bunch. We're going to keep having her on because, like we said, this is going to be one of the major issues in perpetuity. We all get sick. We all die. And we all got a government's got to try to figure out what to do about it. Elise Omidraw, you are the best. We appreciate you so much, my friend. Thank you for the time today. Thanks so much, Andrew. Yes, ma'am. Welcome back to Hertel. All right. He is the most appeared person in the history of this program. He's got his own best of Hertel now because he's done that much good work. He is fabulous from the stars to the ground and everything in between. Dr. Michael Siegel, great having you back on the program, my friend. How are you? Great to be here, Andrew. All right. For those on the YouTube, what's the star field we're looking at? Because I always get these nebulas and star fields and constellations all jacked up. So what one is this one? This is the... Uh, I haven't changed it actually since last time. This is the field that... JDOST looked at where they discovered uh, ices forming in uh, newly born stars. That's sexy science stuff right there. There's mm -hmm. ice in the stars. Let's start terrestrially because something that I thought was on ice has now exploded back into the news cycle. It's something that I thought was on ice has exploded back into the news cycle. Uh, the COVID lab leak theory, we're still kind of calling it. Let me just lay out where I'm at on it after three years because for folks that aren't familiar with you, at Ordinary Times, you've been our go-to guy on COVID because one, you're a scientist. Two is you actually have members in your household to work on things like vaccines. So you have a lot of working knowledge of this stuff and you can break down things so that even I can understand it. So you've been covering COVID for a while. 
We've talked about the lab leak thing since the early days of this. We've talked about it all the way through. We talked about it a couple of months ago. Here we are. It's back again. Let me just lay out where I'm at on it as a non-scientific outside observer. I think the theory that this came out of a lab, it's credible. I don't know if it's true. I don't think we'll ever know it's true. I think it's probably the most reasonable explanation if you just break everything down as far as possible to how this thing got out. But because of the communist Chinese regime and the way they control information, I don't think we'll ever know for sure. So therefore, I'm not going to go to the mat and fight anybody to the death over this one way or the other. But one way or the other, China was responsible for this virus to come out. That's just how I see it. How do you see it, sir? I see it somewhat similarly, but I would uh, <clears throat> disagree a little bit on the more likely scenario. So what has happened this week is that there are eight federal agencies that have looked into the origins of the, of the coronavirus. Uh, one of them, the FBI, has already said that they believe that it came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, the other this week, the DOE said, although they did not disclose what evidence they had to change their opinion, that they have a low confidence uh, theory that it did uh, come out of the Wuhan lab. Now, people have been making fun of that a little bit. You know, low confidence means low confidence. When we have a scientific conclusion, we state how certain we are of those results. It's rare that you're 100%. Sometimes you're 99%, sometimes you're 97%. In this case, they didn't state a percentage, but they said low confidence. In other words, I would guess what they're saying is they think it's a little more likely that it came from the lab than that it came from the wet market. Uh, so, But there's another six federal agencies that disagree with this. Now, one of the people who has been in the front lines of this is Dr. Angela Rasmussen. She is a very active Twitter user and has done the research on this and so forth. She wrote a thread in response to this saying, you know, look, we wrote a paper a year ago looking at the genetics of this virus. It does not show any kind of enhancement or gain of function or anything like that. You, you know, when you're talking about the outbreak, you still have to explain why it out, the outbreak was epicentered on the Wuhan market, which is eight miles and across a river from the Institute of Virology. And uh, actually took a little while to break out uh, because we had people sick uh, off and on. Uh, but I do agree with you that we may never know for sure. Even if China were completely 100% transparent, you may never know for sure. It may be that they had a wild type virus at Wuhan. Someone there got infected, went to the wet market and so forth. But the wet market is where we had identified the, this potential risk. And so... One of the things that's very difficult to get across to the public is thinking what I call in a Bayesian sense, thinking in terms of probabilities and updating your priors and not saying getting these things in, in terms of black and white or yes and no, but in terms of what's most likely. At this point, based on the genetics of the virus, based on the outbreak, we still think it's most likely that it came out from the wet market. But again, like you said, the opacity of China, the fact that China lied about it early on and covered it up and still is very opaque about what went on early on is just uh, feeding is feeding this. I don't think it's necessarily a conspiracy theory to say that this this is this outbreak there. I, I think we have enough people who think that there's a probability that it happened that it, it's far from that. And conspiracy theories, you know, they're not Conspiracy theories fill needs for people. And one of the things I think we fail to process 
is that the last three years have been incredibly traumatic. You know, we had a lockdown. We had restaurants closing. We had people losing their jobs. We had people sleeping in their cars so they could get tested. We lost a million Americans. We lost probably 10 million people worldwide. This was a major trauma that we hadn't seen the likes of in over a century. And in response to that, conspiracy theories flourish when you have a trauma. It's terrifying to think that a random pangolin in a random lab in a, in a random market in China caused this global pandemic and all this suffering and destruction. Whereas if you fit it into some kind of plan where it was a, a pandemic or you know, there was a conspiracy or they, they plan this out to depopulate or to give everyone 3G chips or whatever, that's comforting. It makes it feel like the world makes sense and so forth. So I think you have to separate two things, the conspiracy theories that flow from the scientific inquiry and the scientific inquiry itself, which is still going on. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel, this goes exactly to what I wanted to ask you about, the comfort level. One of the reasons we're rehashing this is people just want to understand the un-understandable un here, right? That's a big part of this. One of the things, and I've talked to you about this almost every time you're on, is to really understand science, you almost have to not start with what does science do or the scientific method. You almost got to start with what does science not do and then work backwards, right? Because we seem to think like science is this answer to everything, and it's not. It's a method. How much of this debate, and I hate to frame it this way, but I just have to, does it really matter how it started? I'm content with it came out of China. We know China's not transparent. We know they've got all kinds of illicit aims. The regime does. We know they lie, cheat, and steal about all kinds of stuff. I'm content with that level of knowledge. Like, look, it came out of China. It may have been malicious. It may not, but it came out of China. I don't know that I really need to know more than that to make a valid observation on COVID ever since then, other than that. Past that, how much does it matter exactly how this started? And people are going to say, well, millions of people die. We got to know exactly how it Well, we already established we're never going to really know how much of rehashing this again and again, like we seem to do about every six, seven months, is really being profitable here? I think in terms of policy, it would affect our work with China and our collaborations with them on virology. It would affect the safety protocols that are, are done in these kind of labs to make sure. I mean, one of the scary things that I heard during this debate was someone said lab leaks happen a lot. They just rarely break out because it's rare that you have a disease that gets that kind of traction. Usually they burn out pretty quickly or don't establish that sort of group of people you need to then have that outbreak. So uh, I think in terms of that kind of policy, it might be important, but we should be revisiting those policies anyway and thinking about what kind of collaborations we want to do with China, what kind of safeguards we need on this kind of research and so forth, regardless of where it came out. And regardless of where it came out, we do know a huge problem was the People's Republic's opacity on this, an unwillingness to admit that they had a problem on their hands. I mean, they were saying early on, this does not go transfer from human to human. And they knew that was a lie. They knew it was wrong. And they tried to suppress it and punish the scientists who tried to warn the world of what was going on. Whether it broke out from a lab or from the uh, wet market, that was the critical error, I think, early on of pretending that this was contained when it wasn't. Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Part of the conversation on this, too, and again, we've talked about this multiple times over the last two, almost three years now. When it came to COVID, when it came to COVID policy, 
you know, scientists have their own language talking amongst themselves, and that language does not translate to the general public. And it really doesn't translate to government committees and things like that and regulators and things like this. When we start talking about origins, when we start talking about the research portion of this, you just mentioned, there's a debate about how much researching of these super viruses, I'll put that in, you know, quotation air quotes, how much this research, you know, are we at a limit to where we should be doing some of this at all? Is there still good science involved here? That seems to be a conversation that got buried under a lot of this other stuff because people are going, well, wait, wait a minute. Why are we design? And I understand it's not settled, but let's just assume this was a lab created virus because there are lab created viruses that they used to study. That debate seems to got washed under here, though. But people are coming back to it like, why are we doing some of these things in the first place? Are these labs secure? Is the research? Are we researching just for the sake of researching without really having a tangible goal that affects the public here? Those are all valid questions, and that's something that we need to be talking about here as well, is it not? Um, absolutely. Uh, scientists tend to be cautious about this stuff, but you are playing uh, with very dangerous things. So I, I don't think one of the things that we discovered in uh, some of the document releases that we've had is that some of the companies and organizations that were doing this research were playing a bit fast and loose with documentation and so forth. and weren't being completely honest in some of the stuff they were reporting. And so that's something that we need to, to take a look at. We need more transparency about what is going on, not necessarily to the public, because some of this stuff is, you know, might be classified or, or copyrighted or whatever, but at least to the funding agencies, uh, they, they, you know, they don't have enough people to be looking into what's going on and make sure. And I think this is one instance where they do need to have a, a tighter supervision of what's being done. Michael Siegel joining us talking about accountability, though. People want this reckoning for COVID that they're not going to get. You're not going to get it. You're not going to get a reckoning. You're not going to get those lives back. You're not going to get a good, solid answer on where it came from. What do we do going forward? I know you've talked about one of the signs of good science is science that doesn't mind being questions or science that can admit it's wrong. Where are you seeing the positives here? Because we've done a lot of bashing of science and scientists and governments and rightly so on this. Where are you seeing good stuff coming out of this? Where are you seeing that accountability? Because I'm seeing some of it, even in the press, where people are coming out and going, nope, we were wrong. We got that one wrong. Uh, we, we were wrong because of the information at the time. We didn't know we were wrong, but we did. I'm seeing some of that trickle out now in the scientific community, though. Where are you seeing some of those points of light so that we're also showing the positive and not just bashing all the scientists? Because it's not uniform. There's plenty of people that feel bad about how this got handled. I think that the, one of the positive things to emerge from this is that we're getting less shy about letting the public know how the sausage is made, basically. That there is debate, there is argument, there are false leads, we follow the wrong ideas sometimes, and that we, we make decisions, and in this case where we had a public health emergency, based on incomplete information. And there's been a tendency, especially when you have an intersection of science with public policy, 
to try to not show our doubts, to not show what we're questioning, to not show what we're uncertain about. And I think that is breaking down a bit, that uh, we are showing a little more trust in the public to be discerning, to understand that this is the best answer we have now. And if we get more information, we will update you. You know, I think that that is going to be, we've come a long way from the early days where it was trust the science, you know, oh, you disbelieve the science and where we're trying to distinguish between where you have scientific gobbledygook like ivermectin and stuff like that and where you have legitimate scientific questions. Michael Siegel. All right. We talk about the scientific accountability of this. The public, I think, needs to have some accountability here, too. Because as bad as the government mishandled this, as bad as science kind of fumbled this, I don't think we, the public, handled this particularly well either. From the scientific point of view, because it was one-way traffic in the media, it's always the public bashing everybody else, right? Where does the science community look at the public and go, yeah, y'all kind of didn't handle this real well in a couple of areas. What areas was it? Because I know, believe the science is a horrible thing that should never be uttered by a scientist ever again in the history of time because it kills your credibility. What's a legitimate criticism from the scientific field of how the general public handled this crisis? That is a tough question. Uh, it's it's really difficult to know because when you're talking about how the public responds to the to things, that's really complicated. It depends on people's biases. Unfortunately, politics is involved. I think probably the biggest criticism is, and this applies to science generally, is trying to wedge it into a political frame instead of a scientific one. That you know, seeing these sets of policies as liberal policies or these sets of policies as conservative policies. And we're, we're seeing that right now with this talk of the lab leak where there were a bunch of left-wing talk show hosts last night making fun of the Department of Energy for coming out, <coughs> excuse me, with this report about the origins of the virus and saying, what do these physicists know? Well, the DOE has a division that looks into this. These are experts. They're just as much experts as the CDC. They disagree with them, but you know they have that. So I think there is a tendency when we hear news about the pandemic, masks work or masks don't work, the, vi the vaccines work or the vaccines don't work, to base our acceptance and belief of what we're hearing on how we perceive the politics that if we perceive it as being a left-wing talking point and we're conservatives, we think that they're they're wrong. And if we perceive it as being a right-wing talking point and we're liberals, we perceive that as being wrong instead of you know, saying, okay, maybe they're right about this. Maybe they have a point. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel. Okay, let's talk about a more current event that involves science that has people confused. Uh, East Palestine, Ohio. Here's where I start with this one, okay? When it comes to chemical leaks and environmental disasters, and we can put the rail stuff on top of it, but that's an added layer. Let's just stick to the chemicals themselves because that's what people are really scared of here, right? Look, my, my uncle was an environmental engineer. I remember when I was a kid, we'd go out to these old steel sites around you know, Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania, and these places have been closed down, some of them 40, 50, 60 years, and you're still testing the water and the soil samples and getting contaminants, that kind of stuff. It'll be a long time before you actually know the environmental impact of this. That's just how the science of these things work. Now, you actually looked at what the chemicals were involved here. There's a lot to unpack in this thing. How do people stop being afraid of this and just go, oh, chemical spill, big mushroom cloud, bad, which is all true. 
just visually, that's all true. How do they start parsing through the science, especially when they have a news media that doesn't cover the science angle of it other than usually a fear-mongering tactic or sometimes not giving people enough reason to be afraid? That happens as well. How do they get into a science story like this that's already been politicized and turned into a buzzword? It's really difficult because, you know, the, these are very specific chemicals with very specific effects. And the effects vary dramatically depending on how much you are exposed to and for how long. Um, the main one that people worry about is the vinyl chloride. That was, uh, there were about 500 tons of it in the wreck, and that was the one that produced the big uh, cloud of smoke when they decided to have a controlled burn rather than let it explode. And that produces phosgene, which is a poisonous gas, and um, hydrogen chloride, which is a precursor to uh, hydrochloric acid. Um, and this, this has effects on the environment. This has effects on the people there. I think there was a bit of hysteria and people saying, oh, it's the Ohio river. It feeds 10% of the entire country. It's been poisoned and so forth. We have chemicals going into rivers all the time. And so I think you need to take a step back and look at the bigger picture of what's going on. Um, it's easy to get hysterical when you see animals dying, but you have to realize that's not necessarily indicative of a Chernobyl type event. You know, small animals are very sensitive to chemicals. You're from West Virginia. In the coal mines, they used to have canaries. They had canaries because if you get to high carbon monoxide level, the canary will pass out and die before humans would. And so if the canary dies, get out of the mine before anything happens to you. We've heard stories of a lot of pets and small animals dying. They are way more sensitive to these chemicals than human beings are. We've seen, you know, they talked about all these fish in the rivers that are dead. Fish are extremely sensitive to chlorine. Uh, if any of you out there have fish in a tank, what is the first thing you do with the water? You put stuff in it to get rid of the chlorine so that uh, so the fish don't die. They're very sensitive to chlorine. So it's easy to look at fish dead in rivers and animals dead and this big pillar of smoke and think that something horrible is going on, which it kind of was, but that's why we have teams there. The EPA was there that night, the CDC, HHS are there. They're monitoring these uh, chemical levels and so forth. Even at low levels, they can cause irritation health problems. So I think they're gonna have to be monitoring the people there for quite some time to see, uh, to see how this works out. And I think uh, Norfolk Southern uh, is a company that can foot the bill for that. Yeah, and they already are. Michael Siegel, always appreciate the time, sir. Let folks know where they can follow you. Let them know about your great YouTube channel where you break down sci-fi stuff. Also, let them know where they can follow your writing and your tweeting and all that good stuff. Uh, mainly go to www.ordinarytimes.com. That's uh, the uh, gateway to everything. That's where I uh, post all my videos and all my articles. It links to my Twitter feed and so forth. Uh, I've have a video channel where I talk about science, but mostly science and movies. I just did a, a very long episode on contact and the uh, science of talking to aliens and radio astronomy and so forth. So uh, that's where you can find me. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel, we always appreciate you coming on and spreading your knowledge around like garlic butter on good bread, my friend. You do good work. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. 
by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.